Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Park Hill Church. If you're new, my name is Evan. My wife, Sandy, and I have the joy of leading this church together. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to jump right in. We're walking through 1 Corinthians as a church, and today is part two on tongues and prophecy. (laughs) Speaking in tongues and prophecy. You're like, what am I walking into Uh, A lot of what I say today, you guys, will be assuming you heard part one last week. So if you missed it, highly recommend you go back and listen to the podcast. This definitely builds on what we laid down last Sunday. Here in chapter 14, Paul is calling us to follow the way of love by chasing after all the stuff the Holy Spirit wants to do when we come together, okay? And, and, And so if this... If this teaching feels like two sermons, disclaimer, that's because it kind of is. (laughs) We're taking tongues and prophecy and squeezing it into one just packed teaching. So so hopefully you can stick with it. It'll hopefully pay off at the end. Paul, he he wants us to follow in in the way of love, which is doing the Holy Spirit stuff when we gather. And he zooms in on two of those things in this chapter, speaking in tongues and prophesying. So so today he tells us what those are, why they matter, and how do we do it? How do we step into this? So are you ready for this, you guys? 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Okay, let's define the terms now. What is speaking in tongues? What is prophecy? First, tongues literally just means languages. That's what the word means. But here, speaking in tongues is a specific thing the Holy Spirit wants to do in the life of Christians. So a simple definition basically all Christians agree on is this, speaking in tongues equals the spirit-empowered ability to pray or praise God in languages unknown to the user. Okay? That's where pretty much everyone agrees. Where the debate comes in is whether tongues are always lingual or if they can also be sublingual. In other words, Is speaking in tongues always an actual language or can it also be language-like, babbling syllables? Uh, And and here at Park Hill, just to let you know where we're at uh, as leadership here, our, our, our team has the both and view, which is probably the main view in the global church, the gift of tongues. It can manifest as actual language. We see that in scripture and it can also manifest as vocal sounds that seem language-like, and this is all depending on what the Spirit wants. So here's N.T. Wright, who is possibly the leading Christian thinker alive today. N.T. Wright talks about it this way. Tongues refers to the gift of speech, which through making sounds and using apparent or even actual languages, somehow bypasses the speaker's conscious mind. Such speech is experienced as a stream of praise. Though the speaker may not be able to articulate what's precisely being said, 
it emanates a sense of love for God, of adoration and gratitude. It wells up and overflows. It is like a private language of love. I love that. We hold that tongues can manifest as actual language. We see that in Acts chapter two. The first day of the church, the spirit comes down and the first Christians start speaking languages they do not know, but people visiting did know and became Christians because of the gospel through those languages. So that happens. I would even say that the gift of tongues can happen like spirit-empowered ability to learn language really well for the purpose of the kingdom or Bible translation or missionary work. We don't want to limit the Holy Spirit to just like spontaneous stuff, right? The Spirit is also patient. Love is patient and he works with us over time. So it's a both and. So tongues, it's a language. We can also be language-like. N.T. Wright calls it apparent languages experienced as a stream of praise. In Paul's words, uttering mysteries by the Spirit. Okay, now you're like, uh, why would I want that? <laughs> what would that do? Um, this is not necessarily what I was coming here for, but I'm in, I'm in. Why would I want to speak in tongues? Here's Paul's reason, you guys. Paul says, speaking in tongues builds up your spirit through intimacy with God. It's not the only way to be intimate with God, but it is a powerful way. And you're, you might, you're like, how does speaking in tongues build my spirit, Evan? Because in Paul's words, the one who speaks in tongues speaks to God. Almost attunement into heaven. But, but can I speak my own language to God? I can speak to God without tongues. Of course, absolutely you can. But let, but let me ask, do you know everything you need to talk about with God? Are there times when you're seeking his face or you're longing for his presence or maybe your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and you're not sure what to say, but you know you need to, you want to open yourself more fully to the spirit and you're like, Lord, what do you want to show me more of? You ever feel like that? Speaking in tongues is primarily a prayer language where you humble yourself open your soul to God. And like Romans 5 says, the spirit pours out the love of the father in your heart. This is the delight of tongues. It's the delight of tongues. Okay, Evan, maybe I'm buying this or whatever. So how do I do this? How do I practically speak in tongues? How does it practically work? Is it like something that has to happen to me? Like I'm a tree in a forest and I'm waiting for lightning to strike? No, <laughs> although waiting on God is a good thing and standing still like a tree can be good, but here's a better way. Eagerly desire it. Strive for it. Actively pursue this. Step into it. Don't just lean back for it. Okay, but what does that look like? Great question. It can be very simple. We're gonna do tongues first and we're gonna do prophecy. Um, so, so this is a very simple way to step into tongues. Four things I found personally helpful, okay? Pray, create space, step out and practice. If you're taking notes, write those down. If you're not taking notes, like write those down. You can run the gift of healing or prophecy, word of knowledge. You can run them all through those four things. Let's try it with tongues. Number one, pray. Ask God, God, like I want 
to pray in the spirit. Can I please pray in the spirit? And, and if it's not the time and it just doesn't seem like the time, listen, that's okay. Like it doesn't mean you're not spiritual or mature, not at all. I know people who have asked God that they would speak in tongues and they still never have. And I know people who didn't ask at all and the spirit moved them to pray, even sing in tongues. This happened just last month with my son, Gavin in, in Norway. Gavin's at this discipleship school and there's this roommate of his who was just singing alone uh, over Zoom because they had to quarantine for 10 days because of Norwegian regulations or whatever before they could do the school. And so he's in his little bubble and he's just like worshiping with his class through a screen and minding his own business and suddenly just starts babbling, like, not, like speaking in something he doesn't know what he's saying. But he was so caught up in the Lord at the time that he's like, I was, he was personally terrified at the moment. And, and there, I, I know people like that. They don't ask for it and the Spirit moves. Because the Spirit does what he wants. For this, and it's for the sake of love. It's to grow our capacity to love. That's the point. Not just to, to be flashy. In fact, you're going to find out it's the opposite of flashiness. It's to grow in our capacity to love. So start with praying and ask. And then number two, make space, create space. Like go hike up Mount Cowles alone or go to the beach, go for a walk, set time aside for God to work in you. And number three, step out. You've asked, you've created space. Now speak a word or a syllable or two syllables or 10 Maybe start in your car while you're driving and just be like, Lord, I, I just, I want more a sense of your presence in my life. I'm thankful that you've saved me. And Lord, I just, and you start singing in English or whatever your language is. And then just in faith, a couple of syllables in a language you've never known ever. This is literally what it is. It feels like baby talk. It feels like this is fake. That's, that's it. That's the thing. And, 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 and then the step four is you practice that. Just like learning a language, when you're dry, whether you're in your car or just going about your day, you, you shift your eyes and the, the, the direction, the compass of your heart toward the God who loves you. And maybe that's physically kneeling in your bedroom and, and you, you posture your soul toward God who is God and you are not God, he is, and you just speak. And so pray, create space, step out and, and keep practicing. You guys... When I exercise the gift of tongues personally, I am baby talking. <laughs> what am I doing? It's humiliating. And that's the point. It humbles you in the presence of the king of the universe in a way that the scriptures describe. So those are just four things that I've found helpful over the years. Nothing fancy, just basic advice on how to chase after this stuff, this private prayer language we read about in the scriptures. And that's the delight of tongues. The Spirit pours out the love of the Father in our hearts and we open up to what he wants to do. That's the delight of tongues. But right away, Paul's like, watch out because the private delight can become a public problem. Like if you're really rich or you have this giant statue made of gold and you display it for everyone to see, uh, but you don't share any of it. That's not delightful to people. <laughs> That's just showing off. And, and so this is that. When we gather as a church, Paul's like, tongues is private wealth. Let me suggest something 
better for the gathering. Verse five, he says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues for sure, but I'd rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so the church may be edified and built up. So Paul's all for tongues. He wants it for us for sure. But he's like, when you come together, chase prophecy, guys. Do that one. So uh, what is prophecy? So we define tongues. What is prophecy? Isn't prophecy something prophets do or someone that has a gift of prophecy or whatever? And Paul's answer would be yes and no. The New Testament talks about prophecy in at least two different ways, you guys. There are prophets in the church in the sense of people with a unique role to nudge the rest of us toward Jesus. It can be fiery, it can be warm and fuzzy, but it's nudging us away from non-Jesus-like things toward Jesus. Ephesians 4:11 talks about these kinds of people. It says, Christ himself gives prophets... Why? To equip the rest of us to love well. And Romans 12 says, Paul's like, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy according to your faith. He's like, do it if that's your thing. <laughs> so he acknowledges there's people that have a unique calling as new covenant church prophets. These people are soaked in the scriptures and maybe have a speaking gift and they just have a way of pushing us toward Jesus and warning us when we're missing Jesus. And these people are hopefully humble. Often they can come across as arrogant because they're all about righteousness and justice and they can come across as self-righteous. And that's kind of the struggle that prophets deal with. Now I admit you guys right away, I do not like the word prophet. It doesn't sit well with me. Um, like mainly because of the goofy stuff we've seen on TV or maybe a weird personal experience. I mean, if someone, com if someone comes up to me and says, listen to me, I am a prophet. Immediately I'm like, sit down, be humble. Uh, don't talk to me. But the reality is, you guys, we do have prophets today in the New Testament sense. We just don't like to call them that. For some American examples, think of guys like A.W. Tozer from two generations ago, just calling the church away from entertainment and back into worship. Or for current people, think of like Beth Moore or Eugene Peterson, these people who just have this burning message from the spirit to call the rest of their church context back to righteousness and justice. These are prophets in the Ephesians 4 or Romans 12 sense of a unique gift or role. Here, however, in 1 Corinthians 14, it seems to me Paul is talking about something different, not the role of prophet, but the spiritual practice of prophecy that's open to anyone who's a Jesus follower and the spirit animates it as he wills so the church can be built up. Why do I think this? Because Paul's writing this letter to the whole church, men and women and children. He's like, all of you follow in the way of love. All of you eagerly crave this stuff, especially Prophecy, he says, especially. So he elevates prophecy above all the other ones, knowledge and healing and administration. And he's like, this is the one to really chase for all of you. And the question is, why would he want that for all of us if we can't all chase it? So what does it look like to chase it? What does it look like to prophesy? ESV Study Bible, great Bible with awesome notes from a full range of scholars. 
they define prophecy this way. The word prophecy, as used by Paul in 1 Corinthians, refers generally to speech that reports something that God spontaneously brings to mind or reveals to the speaker, but which is spoken in merely human words, not words of God. And I think that's helpful because it distinguishes between human words of prophecy and God words of scripture, and it ranks human prophecy below scripture, but it still affirms human prophecy is sourced in God. It's amazing how that works. Um, I really love this definition from Greg Haslam. He was pastor of Westminster Chapel in London. If you've heard that church, it's where Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and Kendall and all these famous preachers from the last century were preachers there. And Greg Haslam, he talks about prophecy like this. I love this. Prophecy is a phenomenon that results directly from the access the Holy Spirit has to our minds, whereby he can create pictures in our imagination and supernatural dreams while we're asleep. He can put words, ideas, or scriptures into our heads with such force that we know there is something weighty and unforgettable going on. Something that carries with it the responsibility to pass on and relay what the Holy Spirit has communicated. I I just got chills on that one down my right arm. That's amazing. I love that. Prophecy is when God's spirit sets up shop in you and implants in your mind scriptures. For me, it's scripture 80% of the time when this happens. It's it's a biblical book or a specific verse or a psalm to share with someone for a moment. Or maybe it's not a scripture, but a strong sense for someone. And I wanna share that in humility or a specific encouragement or vision or picture or thought that arose during maybe a prayer meeting and it's mixed with words and knowledge or whatever. And then God wants us to take that and run it through the grid of scripture. Is it biblical? God will not contradict what he's already revealed. And then we relay that in our own words. God uses our own words for this stuff. And in full humility, like, hey, I could be totally off and I submit to leadership on this. You say, this is what I sense for strengthening, encouragement, and love for someone. Paul calls this the way of love. This is what we want. This is what we're after for strengthening the church. So we've defined speaking in tongues and and, and prophecy. Paul wants us to crave them, both of them, and and do them. It's an intentional pursuit. So why? why? Why should we crave this? Because tongues enriches you personally. Prophecy enriches the whole community. Right? Another way of saying it, tongues restores your inner world. Prophecy restores your outside world. All for the sake of love. You and your church growing in our capacity to love one another and God. That's what this is for. But Paul's like, when we're gathered, skip tongues if you can and prophesy instead. Why? Because he's simple. Like, I don't, I don't understand your tongues. <laughs> this is his logic. He says, now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or instruction. And he uses a metaphor. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, like the pipe or harp. We have a harpist here, I think. 
How will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Again, if a trumpet doesn't sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking to the air, he says. I love this. It's a great music analogy. Paul uses music to illustrate how bizarre your tongue sounds to other people. So right now we're going to try it. Not tongues, but like the music analogy. So I'm going to go to the piano just to show you kind of what Paul's, what's in his mind here. It's kind of, kind of brilliant of him. So you guys with me? So <laughs> Paul's like, uh, for a t- for, you can't recognize a song unless there are three elements. Anybody know a little music theory? What are the three basic elements of a piece of music? Difference between just noise and music. What's, what Melody, yeah? What else? A beat or rhythm, harmony, those, at least those. The harmony sets the key signature and then the beat is the tempo. You need these things. Otherwise, it is, it is this. So I'm going to play a piece of music with no melody, rhythm, whatever. That's called Cat on the Piano, a.k.a. Jazz. And um, I'm just kidding. I love jazz. But you know what that is? What song was I playing? Did you recognize what song it was? But don't look at me, I was playing in tongues, so I'm, I can't tell you. So, so that's kind of the idea. It's, this is what it feels like when you speak in tongues in a group of people. Paul's saying somewhere between embarrassing and just bizarre. And Paul's words, speaking to the air. Now, here's what your prophecy feels like to that person in that group. And it goes on. Immediately, you know how to respond. You know how to engage. That song, Chopin's Prelude in E minor, has been enriching souls since 1839. We know how to be enriched by that. And you don't need to be a musician to tell the difference, right? So, so this is what your humble, spirit-led prophecy feels like to people. God wants to use you to build up the soul of someone else right here in this gathering. So there it is, Paul's music analogy. It's a great example. Paul knows everything. He even knows like music theory. He's a beast. So chase after it. Tongues is great. Prophecy does that. Get after this stuff because it's all for loving God and people. Verse 12, keep reading. Since you're eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in the ones that build up the church. Verse 13, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret. We're all about intelligibility. Verse 14, because if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I don't even know what I say. Baby talk, you guys. That's what it is. Feels fake. Verse 15, so what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit. That's Paul's code for speaking in tongues, praying the spirit. But also 
pray with my understanding. Both. I will sing with my spirit in tongues, but I'll also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they don't know what you're saying? You are giving thanks well enough in your inner world, but no one else is edified, he says. <laughs> I love that language. So you guys get the picture. Whenever we're here, on this promenade, or when we're back in that building, Paul's goal is to get us thinking outside of ourselves and our own wants, our own personal growth or whatever, and to, to switch from getting mode to giving mode. This is Paul's goal. And that's so hard for Americans uniquely. We swim in consumerism. It is the air we breathe like fish in water. Don't even know they have water. We don't even know consumerism is the way we live and move and think. So we step into an environment like this and our default mode is, where is my benefit? And sometimes we even say, how can I get fed? And it's getting mode is on. And, and according to Paul and Jesus, the reason why we gather as a church is because my ultimate priority is not me, but you. And your ultimate priority here is not you and your personal growth, it's hers. And it's, and it's his. And it's whatever part God wants you to play in that. That's the goal. What if this was our mindset whenever we got together? Like seriously, here on Sunday, Sunday gathering, you walk through the weird temperature scan, you get whatever your temperature is, and, 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 you, and you come out the other side of the tent, you're like, I, I'm here, I'm prepped. How can God use what I've prepared my, in someone else's life today? Can you imagine if all of us, hundreds of people on this promenade every Sunday had that same shared priority to speak comfort, encouragement of God over the life of someone else here? Or your community night, you're ready with a word for someone. You've, you've thought about it for three days or you've asked God for one thing and you have faith. This is the thing and you come in, you don't know who it's for, but you're listening. What if that's how we came? Not as consumers, but as essential contributors to that moment. Like there it is, there's the opportunity. Opens up and you speak in humility and kindness and they receive Chopin's prelude in E minor from your heart to theirs. And this will absolutely be happening during our week of prayer and fasting. Next, I hope you all can come and commit to that. It's gonna be beautiful. We're gonna be chasing after this stuff every Tuesday night of April, right here, during our month of crying out. We did, our first month of crying out was January. We have stories of God doing, God saved people and healed people in January through these nights. And now we're gonna do it again in April, every Tuesday. I hope you can get there because we're chasing after this stuff as a church. Let's crave this actively, speaking the love of God in each other's lives. So Paul continues, verse 18, <laughs> I love this. Paul's like, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. It's awesome, Paul. It's nice. But that's kind of a crazy thought, right? The guy who wrote 13 books of the Bible, brilliant scholar, was a wild, crazy tongue speaker. More than all of you. He's like, I'm thankful that I do it more than you ever will. But in the church, I'd rather you speak, verse 19, five intelligible words are better than 10,000 words in tongues when you're together. Paul gives a strong reason for this. You ready? Verse 22. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but unbelievers. 
think sign as a bad omen. Signs in the Bible can be good or bad. He's saying, if you speak in tongues around unbelievers, they'll think it's a bad omen. <laughs> they, won't, they, they won't react very well to this. There's nothing for them in your tongues. He says, verse 23, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, won't they say you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or seeker comes in while everyone's prophesying, then they're convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all and the secrets of their hearts are laid bare and they'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming God is really among you. He's here. That's the effect of prophecy. Tongues doesn't do that. Prophecy will do that. This is the point. When we practice this, comfort and love, bringing intelligent, clear, biblical, prophetic words to one another, it can have a profound effect on people outside the church. Profound. That's what Paul's saying. Why? You guys, if you haven't noticed, our culture is cutthroat. Cutthroat right now. Hostility everywhere. Whether, you're, whether you spend hours a day on social media or you go to college or wherever, there's just the way we're holding our opposing views isn't the best in human history right now. It's hostile. So imagine you're coming from the wider world you're, and you're not a Christian and you're sort of curious about Jesus and you're visiting the church and suddenly you hear people affirming one another and speaking the best about each other into each other's lives and reminding each other of what God says about your identity as son or daughter. And you're an unbeliever and you're hearing people speak this way regularly. People just speaking unfiltered, raw encouragement, rooted in the goodness of God. Let me ask, how would that affect you? What would that do to your soul? Paul's like, I'll tell you what it'll do. That unbeliever is gonna come in while everyone's doing this in pure love and their heart's gonna break open, confess their sin, admit their need of God, fall down and worship and cry out, God is really here. God is among you guys and I wanna be among that. This is the effect. You know what that's called? An old word, revival is what that's called. It's called gospel renewal. How many of you want to see people coming to Jesus, the true, risen, good Jesus? How many of you want to see people coming in droves in our city? This is part of how that happens. Eagerly pursue prophecy. Become this kind of people. Verse 26, what do we say then, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has, how many of you? Some of you have this. Every one of you has a hymn or a word, an instruction, revelation, a tongue, interpretation. Everything must be done. How much of this should be done? Just, this, just the main stuff? Oh, great. You're, in, you're into it. And then why? So the church can be built up. And Paul envisions a community. Everyone rolls up their sleeves. Everyone gets their hands dirty, right? For sure, there's church like leaders, that give the bulk of their time to studying the scriptures so they don't say too much dumb stuff. And there's people who put in hours just to care and pastor people through difficulty, for sure. There are leaders. But Paul's point is when the whole church gathers, we don't gather as consumers, but as family, as brothers and sisters who live out the story of God. And our stories weave into each other's through words. And here's what this looks like for tongues and prophecy. Verse 27, just read through the rest. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church 
and speak to himself and to God. So, so if there is another language that's gonna be spoken in the gathering, it should for sure be one that has an interpretation if it's another language. Um, and then he talks about prophecy, verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak. Absolutely. And the others should weigh carefully what's said. And if a revelation comes to someone sitting down, the first speaker should stop for you can all prophesy in turn so everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. That means if you practice this in a group, we do it humbly, admitting we could be wrong, acknowledging the leadership in the room and the power of the scriptures. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And so you guys, I've seen tongues and prophecy happen in large gatherings like this, and it can be beautiful. You know, where there's an open mic and a couple open mics and people come forward and they'll either speak a tongue and they'll wait for a prophecy. And if there wasn't one, they'll be like, that was not the Lord, but keep coming because be brave. Let's keep, and I've seen, I've seen that. And when it's done gently, it can be beautiful. But here at Park Hill for Sunday mornings, our leadership doesn't think this, this microphone in this setting is the most effective way for all of us to practice all of our things, you know? First of all, that would take days. We'd never leave. And secondly, five, if you've ever seen it, 500 to 1,000 people in a room with one open mic can be a recipe for all kinds of crazy, so trust me. But the main reason, this is even more important, the main reason we don't think Sunday morning is the best place for prophecy for everybody? Well, is because what other venues does Park Hill have for people to do life together? Community, Community groups. That's the easy one, right? I mean, you come together safely at Bob's house and, or Tanika's house and, 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 or you go to a coffee shop with your people, you bring a scripture, you bring a Bible verse that's been on your heart or a vision or a word of encouragement. You're like, oh, here's something I'm learning about theology and kick it around. That can turn prophetic really fast. Or I feel God really spoke to me three days ago. Maybe it's for right now. And you walk in your community with something ready to roll, you guys. You have something to give. And you can also do this on Sunday morning, just not everyone behind the same mic, but today we're gonna break up in little groups right before we eat and drink the bread and cup. And we're gonna invite the Holy Spirit to come and just pray. Who knows what'll happen? It could be nothing. It could be the most life-changing thing ever. Who knows? The Holy Spirit does what he wants. And when we're in those groups, listen, that's your shot. That's your chance right there. You might be like, well, I don't know anyone in my group except who I came with. If, if you're looking to pray and prophesy with someone new and you don't know them, there's only one way to fix that. You meet them, right? And, and then you say, can I pray for you? Holy Spirit, would you come? What's your name? Michael. Lord, would you come and speak for Michael, to Michael, through me if you want, and wait. Fight the impulse to see this as a crowd. We are a church. We're a family, and every family has awkward cousins and uncles and whatever. <laughs> We're a family. Paul envisions a family that embraces the prophetic, speaking the voice of God. And when that happens, it shapes us into the kind of church where people from the outside come in and say, God is here. And then Paul wraps up the chapter. Here we are. 
The next two verses, you ready for it? He wraps up the chapter by talking about women being silent in the church. (laughs) Out of nowhere, it seems. So read this with me. Look, verse 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. All right, let's pray. We're good. It's like, where did that come from? It's this beautiful chapter about everyone speaking into each other's lives and the Holy Spirit moving through men and women, for sure. In, in this chapter, these two verses to, to women feel out of place, at least on the surface, if not offensive to our modern ears. Women keep silent, like don't speak, ask your husbands when you get home. That's like all the wrong triggers, Paul, for 21st century right now. What is he doing? So just a few quick things on this. I don't think we need to give it a ton of time because Paul doesn't. I have, I have a take on this. There's like, there's like 20 takes on what these verses mean. First of all, we don't know the culture. We don't know the exact situation, but we know for sure what Paul is trying to say overall. And it's all chapter long, he doesn't want anything to take away or interrupt the stuff the Spirit wants to do, whatever it is. Let the Spirit take center stage. That's his goal. That's his heartbeat. So that's first thing. Second thing, I do not believe Paul is commanding all women not to speak in churches. I don't, but that, that would make zero sense in light of what he's been saying for the last four chapters, right? Remember chapter 11, where he gives women and men equally instructions on how to pray and prophesy publicly in the same letter. So whatever Paul means here in, in verse 14 about women being silent, he can't mean women should just be silent in church. He can't just mean that because he just told people, women, to speak and prophesy in church. If, if, otherwise, this is a really poorly written letter that contradicts itself and should have never made it in the Bible. So, so what does Paul mean? What does he mean here by women must be silent in church and all of that? Again, there's debate on this. Here's my take. In a nutshell, Paul's probably telling the Corinthian women to remain silent because of a lack of women's education in that day, especially around religious education. So back then, women were nowhere near as valued or educated as men. There's still a ways to go today for women to be valued equally as men. But back then, rewind the clock, way worse. At least at the beginning of every church plant, women were way behind, so they had to play tons of catch-up. Women joined a church, Good luck. You had to play tons of catch up with men in the room talking about theology and scripture, which means naturally, have you ever been in that situation, whether you're a man or woman, you feel like, why I need to catch up. You have a lot of questions. So it seems to me that Paul's saying, hey, there's only so much time in the gathering. These questions are really interrupting the stuff the spirit wants to do. Um, in this church in Corinth. And remember, listen, the fact that we see women learning alongside men in the church, huge step forward in that day, huge. So progressive in that day. And that has to be acknowledged in a culture where women were fully marginalized or very marginalized, the gospel was bringing women to the center of God's activity. 
uniquely in that day. And so Paul's like this, listen, picture this. He's like, yes, Corinthian ladies. Corinthian ladies, well done. Welcome to the center. Welcome to the table. Pray, prophesy, learn together with your brothers. And as you're learning, be patient. I know you're working uphill, pockets full of rocks, just uphill wading through mud and the men are just already running. I know the culture's working against you, but be patient. We have limited time in the gathering. So ask anything you need outside of the gathering. This is what I believe is happening here. You might disagree with that interpretation and that's okay. Uh, it seems to me that's the most likely thing. It's less about gender and more about interrupting the gathering. Uh, so whether that applies whether you're a man, woman, child, young, old, believer, seeker, skeptic, and you're here, we don't want anything to get in the way of what the Spirit wants to do here, to grow us in love. Got that? And then Paul finishes, sums it up. Therefore, brothers and sisters, he says, be eager to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. You guys did it. First Corinthians 14, well done. So we want to be a church that chases this. Tongues, private, connection to God, prophecy, public, edifying one another. Let's chase this. And how do, how do you chase tongues? Remember, it feels like baby talk at first. It feels like, is this fake? That's the humility piece. You pray, you create space, you step out with a couple syllables and you practice it with Jesus. And then prophecy, let's stand for the final words. Let's just stand together as we come to the table and sing and all that. I have to admit, you guys, I, I kind of laugh when I read that last verse. Everything should be done decently and in order. I kind of laugh at that. I believe it, it's true, but I laugh at us. Why? Because I don't think that's a problem for us. I think we love order, right? We have our 11 a.m. gathering times and planning center. And then we have, you know, two songs, stand, sit, announcements, teaching. Then we read the giving prayer and then stand and then song, song, maybe song, and then done. You know, we love, we have our plan. We love order. So I think, you know, Paul's like, everything should be done decently in order. I think we have the opposite problem today. I think we need to hear more what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't tune them out. We're like, yeah, but the Spirit doesn't fit into my iCal, I gotta go or whatever. Stop and like, listen. What if God broke in? What if God broke in? When we fast and pray together next week, we're gonna be praying that God moves. But what if he does? I think maybe we wouldn't know what to do. What if God broke in? Just read about the Hebrides and Evan Roberts and the Welsh Revival and the Great Awakening in America. Just read about these moves of God, even in the lifetime of many of us here, the Jesus movement, the way that God chooses, the Spirit does what He wants, and He chooses to manifest in measurable ways that lead to extended fruit across wide ranges of social life. These things are called revivals, spiritual renewal. What if God broke in? Would we, no, would we handle that? Would we step in or would we be like, Ay. What, if he, what if he broke in? What, maybe, maybe the word prophecy is uncomfortable for you. It can be for me. Put it different language. 
do you believe God speaks? What if I asked you that? What would you say? What if I asked you, do you believe God is able by the Spirit at times, but not always, to put stuff into your mind? What would you say? What if I said, there are times, not always, but sometimes, when God wants you to take those thoughts, those scriptures, those pictures and visions, and go talk to somebody about it. In humility and love, share it with them, chat it out. This might be God, I don't know, let's, let's pray. What would you say? Do you believe in that? That's what the New Testament calls prophecy. And under that loaded prophecy word, is this beautiful reality. We worship a God who speaks. Do you believe that? If the answer is yes, then are you listening?